Colloquium, Episode 15, Back to Life, Ben Khan on Shaman. Welcome to Colloquium. My name is Marcus Ahn, and this is my comics creator interview podcast for Sequart. I recently had a chance to talk with New York-based comic book writer Ben Kahn. Ben and his publisher, Locust Moon Comics, recently released his first graphic novel, Shaman, in September. Shaman is a quirky urban fantasy about a necromancer and his teenage daughter who bring dead superheroes back to life. I talked to Ben about the supernatural and sassy world of Shaman, tattoos, his Kickstarter success, and the problems with Superboy punching time. Hey! Hey, Ben. How's it going? Uh, just uh, New York Comic Con was this past weekend, which was amazing. Um, first time I to walk around actually having the book, so that was cool. Nice. Did you have a booth? Uh, no, I was just walking around. So what happened was uh, we're, deal- we're I'm working. Uh, me and Locust Moon are working with Print Ninja to uh, to make the books. Okay. Um, so the books that went out in stores through Diamond, we had we got expedited shipped, um, and the rest of the books um, went like by kind of ground and sea. So the bulk of the books. We're supposed to arrive yesterday. I'm keeping, but uh, it looks like there was a mechanical problem with the truck in Louisville. So, yeah, right now I'm kind of keeping one eye on, like, the UPS tracking um, <laughs> to get the rest of the books delivered. So, no, I actually only have one copy of the book, and I had to buy it from Forbidden Planet in New York. It's <laughs> hilarious. The only copy of my book is one that I went into a store and bought myself. <laughs> Hopefully it's the only one you have to buy. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's great that you're supporting yourself. You know what? I try to I try to go out and support indie creators. Um, it's like I'm, I feel like Robin Hood. Uh, steal from myself to give to myself. <laughs> well, great. Well, let's talk about Shaman. Yeah. Any content restrictions? I'll try not to swear, but um, I just I'll try not to swear. No, no, swear because I'm gonna swear. Oh, in that case. Yeah, there's no restrictions on the Sequart site. Sounds good. (laughs) Drop the F-bomb at will. Can and will do. All right, so the first obligatory question is, how do you describe Shaman to people when they ask about it? I describe Shaman as a quirky urban fantasy starring a necromancer and his teenage daughter bringing dead superheroes back to life. That is my elevator pitch, so to speak. Um, that I try to keep it just like very fun, colorful adventures mm-hmm. uh, with all the humor. Not being quite farcical, but just characters in intense and weird situations. And the I want the humor to come from their reaction to their lives. Mm-hmm. 
So you just described as as uh, an urban fantasy with superheroes, but why did you want to explore that kind of mashup? Um, it really wasn't a conscious decision. Um, the kind of the first spark of the book was, and I know this is going to sound lame and cliche. It actually was. It came to me in a dream. Um, the dream I had it was like one of the first sequ- action sequences in issue one. Um. It was a dream of a magician in a car being chased by a, se- a skeleton and the skeleton like re- reaching in the car and like grabbing him out. And that was kind of the spark. So mm-hmm. what I had from this dream was, and you know, you, you do have a dream and you just know things about what's going on. It was kind of like that. So I knew, okay, I have a necromancer. I know this is a dead superhero and I know this guy is trying to, like, is attempting to bring the skeleton back to life. So it was almost, I had that as my starting point, and then it was just figuring out the rest of the story and building up the world to get to that skeleton car chase sequence. <laughs> Which was great, by the way. Yeah, and, you know, um, you know, I every Wednesday I've got a stack of, like, seven, eight, nine comics high to read. Love superheroes. I mean, there was a whole period of time where almost every story I came up with was superhero related in some way. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Hellblazer and John Constantine. Uh, the the nerd in me wants like anytime I say John Constantine, like the uh, uber nerd in me makes me go, uh, well, it's pronounced Constantine. But after the TV series and everything else, I understand that as far as most people are concerned, it's Constantine. So mm. I can either be that douche or I can just pronounce it Constantine. <laughs> Yeah, nobody pronounces it the right way. No, which I know what the right way is, but I just have to accept. I just have to accept that the wrong way is the new right way. Right. Um. So yeah. Um. I really love the kind of trickster heroes. Um. You know, Loki and Journey into Mystery, John Constantine, um, Ellen Death Note. Just the char- characters who. It's always some scheme or plot. I always like to say, Shaman's name is on the book. It's the title. He's not going to die at the end of issue two. You know he's going to win. So what has to be interesting, what has to, I guess, lure you on to keep reading, is figuring out how he's going to win. Mm -hmm. So, and there's like, to me, urban fantasy, and especially someone like maybe in this kind of like bombastic, punching, punch-filled world of superheroes that may be like urban fantasy trench coat magician stock character would be the best way to kind of explore this notion of like a trickster protagonist. Mm -hmm. Although I got to say, if he did die in issue two, it would be pretty awesome if he was a ghost and resurrected himself. Yeah, that would be an interesting little thing. Um, Well, that kind of brings up the question of, Legacy. Um, I didn't really get to it in this first graphic novel, but one, but so I really like that classic superhero sidekick dynamic. Um, mm-hmm. that sense of, oh, a hero's gonna like train up someone younger, new, teach them the rules and like the way to do things with the expectation that when the original hero can't do it, the sidekick will take on the mantle. And really, you only kind of see that in, like, I'm going to say Hawkeye and Batman and Robin are the only two series where you actually get to see, like, a hero and a sidekick interact. Mm-hmm. So 
to me, a big part of the book was kind of exploring or bringing back that dynamic uh, between Shaman and his daughter, LL. Right. Yeah, and it's really interesting because, like you mentioned, John Constantine, the trickster, and it he Shaman does remind me of John Constantine, but he's sassier. He's a different character. He's a lighter-hearted character. But having yeah. him, giving him a daughter just throws all kinds of new dynamics into the mix that you don't see in something like Constantine. Absolutely. It's hard to be kind of that chain-smoking, badass, mysterious mage who's always got, like, one up on some way when you've got a teenage daughter, like, hanging around making fun of you every step of the way. Um, now, because, like, I started reading... The, I started writing this not too long after I started getting big into Hellblazer, and my entry to that was the um, the wedding issue. So I think from a certain standpoint, LL bears certain was maybe has some influences by uh, uh, Epiphany Greaves, uh, Constantine's wife, uh, near the end run of Hellblazer. But again, I thought I think uh, making them father and daughter just total make gives them a totally new dynamic from those characters. And a lot of that was, you know, you look at Batman, Robin, like Bruce Wayne, Dick Grayson, there's lots of like parent child subtext. So part of this was just me wanting to just not bother with the subtext and just flat out make it text. Yeah. I mean, when you first see them, it doesn't seem like shaman is well suited to the father role, but uh, as you read more, you see, they have a really, strong bond throughout the book. Yeah. Shaman is kind of the perfect father for LL. Um, I don't think he, and it's, so what kind of originally, like when I originally thought of LL, it was just the sense of, Oh, Shaman's a magician. Magicians have assistants and she could be this assistant figure who helps her out, add some like snark, and then as I was developing and thinking about it, you introduced, like, the idea that, oh, she'll have really powerful magic, too, that she'll be the daughter. Her role in the series just grew and grew and grew the more I thought about her until I realized that she was just as vital to the series as Shaman is. Mm -hmm. I like that she has the uh, magical tattoos that she uh, brings to life. Yeah, those are always really fun, just coming up with new tattoo ideas for her to use. Do you um, remember when you first came up with that idea and, and what inspired it? Yes, I can tell you exactly what it was because I don't I, I don't hide the influences where on my sleeve. Uh, I finally picked up Grant Morrison's Final Crisis in Trade, and I really liked the chapter with Tattooed Man in it. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's really cool. <laughs> Do you have tattoos? I don't. I wish I did, but I don't. Um, I know exactly what I would get, too. Uh, right on my left forearm, I would get a uh, dreamer of the day from a uh, T.E. Lawrence quote, Lawrence of Arabia. Mm -hmm. I memorized the full quote. It took me about a week to memorize it. Uh, full quote is, all men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recess of their mind awaken the day to find that it was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act their dreams with open eyes to make them possible. Wow. Yeah, good quote. Uh, lest anyone think I'm all legit and literary and just read T.E. Lawrence on my off time, I first heard that quote because it was used in a trailer for Uncharted 3. 
<laughs> you should get that full quote on your body. Oh, yeah, full quote. But no, I, so I'm thinking just, you know, dreamer of the day. That's what I would get if I was to ever get a tattoo. Right. Do you think you ever will? Maybe, probably. Um, probably one day, but no big rush right now. <laughs> but I do think tattoos are awesome, and a big part of it was just thinking, like, when was the last time you saw just this cool, quirky, spunky, upbeat, happy, witty girl who was also just, like, covered, like, dyed hair and covered with ink? So it was just me trying to just, you know, I just really had this idea for LL as just this snarky punk girl look. And to me, the tattoo, it was, like, form and function hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of the same thing, like, so shaman sunglasses are kind of the same thing. I actually own those sunglasses. <laughs> nice. On um, 2011, when I was, like, first started writing the series, I was thinking, like, oh, I need some little visual thing, nothing too elaborate, but something distinctive, and that could be iconic, really identify the character. And I also needed sunglasses at the time. So I walk into the store. I'm looking for sunglasses, and I see them, and it just clicks. Two birds, one stone. So that's the origin of uh, Shaman's Purple Glasses, which I love that you never see him without. I was just going to ask. I can't remember seeing him without the glasses. No, you never see him with. There's, like, one panel on issue five where he's not wearing it, but you don't see him without it. Like, his face is buried in a pillow. Mm-hmm. You see him, like, reaching for him. So mysterious. Yes, very mysterious. <laughs> what? Does he have magic eyes? No, he doesn't. Does he have no eyes? Ooh. Is he a cyclops? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's talk a little bit more about Shaman. Um, yeah. Since he's the title character, he has a lot of tricks. But first and foremost, he is a necromancer who yep. is compelled by some unknown force to bring certain people back to life. So why yeah. did you decide to have his powers be like this, to be controlled and for him to have a boss who we don't know. We don't know who the boss is yet. You don't know who the boss is. The boss is just kind of like the essence or the personification of life. Um, I ever introduced the character, Plan Connor of Vida, Spanish for life. But to me, that was a necessary way of making him relatable. Um, Because from a one sense, you do get an issue five that like he became the shaman to bring someone specific back to life. So you need to have the question of if he has his power, why hasn't he just brought that character back? Um, Mm. I don't want to say too much just because that spoilers if I ever do more shaman. Um, And also a sense of so in the sense of kind of parodying Marvel and DC and how they just constantly bring back dead characters, dead heroes, dead villains. I knew I wanted to deal with early on kind of the moral ramifications of bringing back a villain, of bringing, of giving life back to someone who may misuse that second chance for life. And to me, like, um, it was very necessary that Shaman doesn't control who he brings back in order to make him relatable. Because I just couldn't think of any explanation for, like, why would he, what would personally motivate him to bring back bad people or help, even the heroes? Why does he even care? So the sense that there was somebody, in a sense, like, not so much controlling the strings, but at least giving the marching orders Mm -hmm. was necessary to kind of give him that perspective of a man just doing his job, 
a man willing who has some end goal and is willing to do whatever it takes to reach that end goal. He doesn't particularly much like the heroes or the villains. He's not a big fan of either of them, but this is just his job. Mm-hmm. And to me, that kind of cynicism go went hand in hand with his kind of trickster con artist nature. So it was, yeah, it was mostly just a way of kind of bringing him down to earth a little bit. Mm-hmm. And even though he has these incredible, fantastic powers, making him, putting him in a more relatable situation. Well, and I think it also creates an interesting dynamic because he doesn't seem like the kind of dude who particularly enjoys having a job or uh, being under somebody's thumb. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, So I didn't really get to delve into it, but I feel like Shaman's headspace is very different because something clearly terrible happened to him that drove him to go out, obtain magic powers, trade something, figure out a way to give up his own name, become the shaman, bring back the dead to undo this, the worst thing that's ever happened to him. But in the process of that, he met LL, who is the best thing that ever happened to him. So he's kind of in a position right now where the worst thing to ever happen to him is directly responsible for the best thing to ever happen to him. Right. And that's kind of the position he's in. So when you mentioned, you made a good point that he is a bit more chipper. He's a bit more, he's got a lighter side than John Constantine. He's a little bit happier. That really, that pretty much entirely just comes from having LL in his life and having that bond with her. Mm -hmm. It kind of reminds me, you ever read the old uh, series Nexus by Mike Barron and Steve Rude? I flipped through it. It's it's one of those things that's on my to-read list. It's one of my favorite series of all time, and it's different than your book, but mm-hmm. in that book, um, Nexus is compelled to kill these supervillain dictators by this creature called the Merc, and uh-huh. uh, whenever he receives uh, a message to take down a target, he gets these strong headaches and anguishing dreams, and so they don't subside until he um, completes a mission. So I, obviously it's different than Shaman, but I like that Shaman has this thing that you know, he has to bring back these people he's compelled to do that but it's not necessarily something he wants to do but along the way he meets other people because of that job absolutely same kind of thing with with nexus and i I love that and the story potential in uh, nexus and i see that in in yours shaman is compelled um it's um it's kind of difficult to figure out what to talk about what to say just because in one sense i just have this one graphic novel five chapters but in another sense, this is a series I've completely mapped out for like a 60 issue run potentially. Um, but wow. yes, yeah, again, there's just, I, I really love these characters, Shaman, LL, Zach Wu. I love the stories. So I have way, way more planned um, after this. Um, I don't know if I'll get to make any of it, mm-hmm. but it all exists in my head. So unfortunately, like, when I was making this, I kind of had to like look at a whole bunch of ice story ideas I had for like early on and just kind of figure out, okay, what are the five essentials? If I, I got five chances to write these characters, what are the five stories that I need? 
But one story I would definitely like to do one day is what happens when Shaman um, is ordered to resurrect someone that he has a very personal reason to not want to bring back and what happens to him when he tries to fight that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it would be kind of like a Nexus where, he, like, his body just starts betraying him, headaches, vomiting until, you know, he does his job. Right. The consequences of it. Yeah. Where he's at right now is he's been doing this job for me- at least about 10 years. So you kind of start, like, in media res in his career as the shaman. So he's kind of hardened himself to a lot of the moral ambiguities or just decided he doesn't care. But, and you kind of see that in um, issues two and three are a big part of that. One passage I'm particularly proud of is when um, one of the superheroes that they're fighting in that story arc um, tells him that every villain that he brings back and he that kills again, that blood is on his hands. And Shaman just responds and asks him if he gets credit for all the hero for all the people that have been saved by the heroes he get he he's brought back to. Right. So it's kind of is there a balancing to the scales? Should you even try to balance the scales, or is the idea that there is some balance between good and bad kind of a needless debate? And I think that's kind of how Shaman feels about it, is that it's his job to bring dead people back. What they then do with their, their lives is their business. He washes it, with the exception of LL, of course. Um, and I really think no line, I guess a little bit of spoilers for the end of the book, but there's no line that kind of sums up LL's character and personality more than, I was 14 years old when I died. It was the best thing to ever happen to me. <laughs> that was a good line. Yeah. Um, and that was one thing I wanted to, so to me that was kind of, there's more to LL's backstory, but I, it was really important that the broad strokes of it are revealed in the um, the graphic novel that she is someone who died and Shaman brought back. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you, I could do an entire story arc just like of flashbacks to like the two of them when they first met. And I'm sure you have plans for that if you get to do more. Yeah. So the artist of Shaman, uh, Bruno Hidalgo, who does such great work and really gives the book such a great feel... Me and him are still working together. We're working on um, a new project that's uh, still being um, done in conjunction with Locust Moon Press. Um, the plot of our new series is called uh, going to be called Thieves of Hell. That one's definitely that one's really just going to be a six issue miniseries. And the plot it's kind of a heist story where uh, the souls of the greatest thieves in hell team up to pull the ultimate heist on heaven. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're working on now, and that'll keep us busy for a while, I think. But after that, depending on where things are and how things are going, I, um, there's honestly nothing more I would like to do than revisit the world of Shaman. It almost sounds like that could tie into Shaman. Like it could be in the same world. Yeah, I mean, conceivably it could be, but uh, if Shaman is like a TV series, like a 15-minute cartoon, then... The, then this new one is a straight-up movie, like Act 1, 2, 3. That's one where I've got, like, a very definitive idea for a story, and it's more story-driven, though I am a big fan of the characters in that book. But uh, with Shaman, it really is much more character-based, and so long as it's these three characters, Shaman, LL, and Zack, just going out on their adventures, 
it's I have an idea. I know where all the major story arcs go, but in the sense that they could just go on and like adventure after adventure, it's potentially infinite. Mm-hmm. Though, like I said, I've got a pretty good idea for like a sixty-ish for like sixty issues about. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of magic in Shaman. Are there rules for the magic in Shaman? Yeah. So. Again, one of those things that I have mapped out, but only have so much real estate in the book itself. But the rules of magic in Shaman is magic is bullshit. It is literally bullshit. It is the (laughs) universe saying it's one thing. You tell it it's another thing. And you lie so hard, the universe believes you. (laughs) That's pretty cool. So Shaman really is a world where theatricality is power. <laughs> well, actually, it gives more power to the trickster. It makes the Constantine archetype much more powerful. Yeah. So I'm naturally something of a dramatic or theatrical person. So I have all these things where I'm like, well, if it was me, I would do this just because it looks cool or is grand or it makes an impact, but it makes no sense, but there's no real reason to do it story-wise. So I kind of figured out a way around that by just making my main characters as theatrical as I am. Like, why do they do these things? Because it's cooler that way. <laughs> and it and it actually makes their magic stronger by doing it that way. Mm-hmm. Have you ever practiced any black magic, Ben? <laughs> oh man, <laughs> no. I like I'm I'm mostly uh blue and green. I'm a real, I'm a teal magician. <laughs> So you're like a Green Lantern then? Oh, I would. Oh, I would love to be a Green Lantern. <laughs> I'm not going to say Green Lantern is my favorite superhero, but I will say I think it's the most inspiring superhero. Interesting. Well, even like Batman. Okay, Batman. You have to a have a fortune and b also just have the physical aptitude to be a Olympic genius athlete. <laughs> right. So you know, but. Green Lantern, it's there. You don't necessarily need innate physical qualities. It's really just your spirit. So I like all the various human Green Lanterns. You've got like a test pilot, an architect, a gym teacher, an artist, a chipmunk, a chipmunk. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just kind of love the message that no matter who you are or what you're doing, so long as you're doing it with like courage and bravery and determination you have what it takes to be a green lantern right you kind of deal with that a little bit by when you explain the rules of magic because you could use your will and your trickery so well that you can get what you want absolutely i never really thought about like shaman being tied to green lantern but yeah (laughs) it is a sense of there is a sense of so long as you're committed enough to what you're doing, you can bend the universe to your will. So, so long as you just lie so hard and you just put so much work and effort into the lie, the universe will just go along with you. Mm-hmm. Are you a good liar, Ben? Well, how would you? Well, <laughs> anybody who says I'm not doesn't know how good a liar I really am then. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> uh, no, to me, the key to a good lie is it's got to be at like at least 70% the truth. Mm-hmm. If 70%, if like 75% is the truth, you can do like, you can make, you can sell that last quarter of lies. 
Right, right. That's my take on it. So yeah, I, I would. I think I'd agree with that. You got to yeah. give them a little bit to grab onto to make them believe. Yeah, and there's also a sense of um, kind of there being a spell and a medium in shaman. So I tried to each kind of give LL and shaman their own signature magical items. Mm-hmm. Um, LL uses like exclusively her magic tattoos. So in that sense, like she herself is the medium. And then Shaman is less reliant on a medium just because he's more experienced, has more tricks. But you see him, like, a recurring element to him is uh, his magic cigarettes. Right. So I do not smoke uh, cigarettes. (laughs) I do not smoke dot, 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 cigarettes. (laughs) This book seems like a lot of uh, wish fulfillment. Tattoos, cigarettes. I know. Oh, oh, absolutely. Um, (laughs) Well, they say write what you know, so clearly I wrote um, a book about a single father in his 50s. <laughs> but So I don't smoke cigarettes, but I do think it makes characters look cooler in fiction if they smoke cigarettes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, so much of it is just, well, does it look cool? Then that's how we're doing it. <laughs> so are there other supernatural stories, or I guess they don't have to be supernatural. Are there other stories that influenced shaman and um, his magical abilities um yeah so shaman um i took certain influences uh from voodoo in that sense of imagery and you can see that mostly in issue four um awesome issue four is just nothing but like is voodoo and baseball (laughs) i was just in new orleans so I was at the Voodoo Museum, and Perfect. I went out with a tour guide who was a uh, voodoo priest. So. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> so I actually name drop uh, Baron Samedi, the Voodoo Death Loa. Uh-huh. So that comes out. Um, I'm a huge Yankees fan. Grew up in Connecticut, so the entire sense of uh, Yankee Red Sox. Issue four is just my entire love letter to that rivalry. Um. <laughs> No, um, a, there's definitely a good amount of superhero references. Um, the villains of two and three, uh, the Cosmic Guardians, that kind of notion of the space cop as a superhero is very Green Lantern. And then uh, Zach Wu and his grandfather are actually based off uh, The Flash. So when I first came up, don't get to talk about Zach Wu very much, just because he mostly just exists to kind of be a foil to Shaman and LL, but he's there. He's still a main character. So... The idea behind him was, so to me, Wally, as much as I enjoy Barry Allen, Wally West is my Flash. And then after Barry Allen came back to life, Wally West just kind of disappeared from the pages. Right. So this was my kind of saying, like, well, what if I just kind of took Wally? What if Wally West actually went and just became, like, started hanging around with John Constantine? Like, what if I just took one of these superheroes, these legacy heroes, that just gets utterly replaced and forgotten about once the original comes back. And I fig- and I work him in a, a way to make him, like, a main character in the group. Right. And he's kind of like uh, the straight man in the group as well. Yeah, he's very much the straight man. So, you know, they don't, one thing they don't teach you about in English class, because they're too busy teaching about nonsense, prose and blah, 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 you know, not actual useful story structure is the kind of, anytime you see a story with three main characters, they usually follow the kind of id-ego-super-ego dynamic. Um, I know Star Trek is a famous example. 
Um, Spock is super ego. Kirk is id. Bones is ego. Futurama, uh, Bender is id. Leela is super ego. Fry is ego. I mean, go down the list. Anytime you've got three main characters, nine times out of ten, they're going to be id, ego, and super ego. Mm -hmm. Um, So Shaman, LL, and Zach definitely still fill that triumvirate. With LL being the id, uh, Zach Wu being the ego, uh, super ego, and Shaman being the ego. Mm-hmm. If there's any wish fulfillment, um, one thing my editor told me, which is probably true, I mean, I'm not sure how conscious of it when I was writing. I was probably a little conscious of it. He said, uh, LL is who I am, and Shaman is who I hope to become. <laughs> which is probably a fair thing to say. Um, what it means about me that I made myself a teenage girl, I don't know. That's, uh, <laughs> that's for the psychologist to figure out. <laughs> well, I uh, we were talking a little about Wu, and I like him because, you know, he used to be involved in the superhero community, and now he's on uh, Team Shaman, but he obviously can offer uh, insights into uh, superheroes that maybe they might not think about Shaman and LL. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um in terms of exposition, LL and so Shaman essentially knows everything, and LL and Zach uh, kind of are good because they each know half of the situation. So you have Wu to explain Matt to like ask the questions about magic, and then you have LL to ask the questions about superhero stuff. So they each kind of fill half of that. But one little distinction I like. Um, I noticed it when I like when I was rereading like issue one when I finished that I was reading and I noticed this and then like I made sure to keep this going for the rest of the book is that Shaman always calls him Wu and LL always calls him Zach. Hmm. I didn't even notice that, but that's pretty cool. Yeah, that makes sense. So just a little distinction how they feel about each other. Um. You know, I love writing Shaman and Wu fight and bicker. And then, honestly, it, it kind of took me as a surprise as a writer just how much chemistry I found Wu and LL having. So that was a very uh, pleasant surprise when I was writing them. Well, and it almost seems like maybe they might have a relationship uh, later on in the book. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Um, They are definitely, like, the love story of the book. And I kind of want to put a distinction between the love story and the emotional heart. Just because, like, so often you, like, the love story is the emotional heart of the book. Mm -hmm. But in this case, Shaman, for reasons relating to his backstory and the way the book is set up, um, doesn't have a love interest. He has no love interest. You'll meet people he's had relationships with in the past. But there will be nobody that Shaman will ever have a will they, won't they. There is no love in Shaman's future. So the love story is between Zach and LL, but the emotional heart, like the emotional core of the book, will always be the uh, the father-daughter relationship between Shaman and LL. Mm-hmm. I kind of, like, in my head, like, especially when I think about the series beyond just the first uh, graphic novel... The series, like, you take away the magic, the dead people, all the tricks and the visuals and everything, and the story is fundamentally about two things, how Shaman became the man he is, and about the woman LL will become. Right. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, Shaman's ability and how that sits with superheroes Yeah. in the universe. He's viewed differently. Yeah. So the vast majority of superheroes do not trust him at all. Um, they don't know too much about him. They don't, they're suspicious of what he's up to. They don't like that in this world that is just so clearly defined between like good and bad, black and white. He is just so staunchly gray and is just someone who is so intimately involved in the world of superheroes and villains without being either. And I think a lot of them, um, especially Zach early on, like don't even know what to do with that. Um, certain superheroes that might have secrets they might like to stay buried, uh, literally buried, definitely don't like Shaman, because um, he could be just be a ticking time bomb to unearthing um, a lot of like the sins in their past. Mm-hmm. And then um, this world's and then this world's equivalent of Superman, uh, who I called Gigaman, who Bruno drew is just this great like blonde Elvis hair, which is this big hulking muscles. He's about like three times as wide as every other character in the book. He's someone that um, him and Shaman have a long history. One of the big parts of the, like the series overall will just be discovering the past between them. But those two go way back. Like they knew each other before Shaman was the Shaman before he could do any magic they had. So they have like a long, deep history. Um, and so Gigaman in kind of respect of that history has kind of declared Shaman like off limits to the superhero community. Like don't start like investigating this guy. Don't spy on this guy. Leave the guy alone. Like, look, he'll bring, villains back but he'll also bring us back so just stay out of his way and you know he's the superman equivalent so he can just so his word is law among the superhero community but that sense that the greatest hero in the world is hiding him and protecting shaman also kind of deepens the sense of mistrust between shaman and the rest of the superhero community mm-hmm. well and also it has to reflect poorly on gigaman because they're like, why are they? Why is he protecting this guy? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I guess a little bit of spoilers for Shaman's backstory, just because, God, it'll be like 15 years if I ever actually get to this part of the story. <laughs> um, is that Shaman at one point was essentially the Jimmy Olsen to Gigaman Superman. Ah. So when I was first creating this, it was a little more of a parody of superheroes rather than its own unique thing, which it kind of grew into. So the sense was kind of like, okay, heroes and villains come back all the time. Who is it that never, who is it that die and never come back? And who is it then that Shaman would be trying to bring back and just be so frustrated that he isn't being allowed to bring back. And it's the human supporting characters. Mm -hmm. It's like you constantly seeing like the friends, and girlfriends and boyfriends die, and they're the ones who don't come back. So it's essentially a story of, like, so Shaman's entire story is essentially, like, hey, what if something happened to Jimmy Olsen that made him turn into Doctor Strange? Hmm. 
That's pretty cool. To mix Marvel and DC a little bit. Well, I, it's really interesting that Shaman brings back superheroes because, as you mentioned, DC and Marvel, they always bring back heroes to life in, in a lot of silly ways. So I like that you give a really good reason for why that is happening in your world instead of, say, uh, having Superboy punch time and Jason Todd pops out of the grave. Superboy punch time and Jason Todd punches. Or <laughs> I think my favorite, though, has to be Oh no, Captain America didn't die. He just got shot with a time travel bullet. <laughs> well, same thing with Batman. The Grant yeah, Morrison but at least run. with Batman, it was like immediate, like immediate. It was like, oh, Batman's dead, and then like you get to the end of the issue, and it's like, no, he's actually just back in time. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't even like there was the sense of, oh, he's dead. Like you kind of knew, okay, he's not really dead. There's some weird time stuff going around. So at least that, and you had Dark Side, so it's like. Fine, Darkseid can just do this. So at least it was kind of like one-on-one. Like, Captain America, like, was dead for, like, a solid two years, and then they busted out the time travel bullet. I know, yeah. Mm-hmm. To which I have to say, like, Marvel, did you just rip off Kurt Vonnegut? <laughs> I mean, sometimes they, they bring back superheroes or characters in a really good way, like Bucky, uh, the Winter Soldier, is great. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, honestly, one of my favorite, like, I like I like the anime and movie more than the comic, but I guess Judd Winnick wrote both, so he gets credit either way. Oh, yeah, he fixed it in Under yeah, the Red Hood. It. Yeah. He fixed it, I, and it was great. Like, I really like Under the Red Hood. Um, Honestly, Winter Soldier is, like, my all-time favorite Captain America story. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, it was just the sense of, like, someone dies, and it's like, oh, here's, an like, a clone, or, like, here's time traveler or oh they weren't really dead they just went into like a phoenix coma with a cocoon (laughs) or oh no superman's not dead the power of mullets brought him back um (laughs) so a big part of the series was just like a big part of like the premise of the series is like hey what if instead of that nonsense it was just this one guy going around bringing everyone back what kind of person would that be so in my sense like I don't know if you could really have him in the Marvel or DC universe, just because, but, uh, I actually, you know what? I think, like, Marvel or DC could actually have a character like that, like, the Watcher or something like that. Like, it wouldn't make, I mean, it would definitely ruin a lot of, like, the tension, but when do you take death seriously now, anyway? Well, they, they could do it with Doctor Strange. Just be like, hey, Doctor Strange yeah. has been responsible for all these returns. You just never knew it. So. I don't know, did you read the uh, latest issue of Doctor Strange, the first issue of the Aaron and Bacalo run? I haven't read it yet. I have it. I haven't read it yet. Is it good? It was really good. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Bacalo's art's great, but yeah, there's a him. scene where Doctor Strange goes to like meet up with some of other Marvels, like other magic people, like Scarlet Witch and stuff like that. And one of the magic users that shows up is Shaman from Alpha Flight. And I know that version of Shaman came first. But I got to admit to reading that page and going, oh, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. Uh, your shaman's a lot better than that, Marvel. Yeah. Suck it, Alpha Flight. I mean, you look at that. I mean, you look at that character. And honestly, it's it's so over the top, stereotypical Native American stuff. It's it's right out. It's right there with Apache Chief. <laughs> like from Super Friends. Right. It's like, oh, hey, 
<laughs> well, let's talk about some of the characters that Shaman has brought back. You mentioned that yeah. uh, you did a Red Sox, Yankees type issue because you bring back Babe Ruth. That was so much fun. I had the time of my life writing that issue. Um, and yeah, and so what kind of inspired that, and that would, and this kind of like one shot break from the superhero supervillains in order to bring back, um, a different person, um, what kind of inspired that was, uh, Starman, how every now and then Starman would do like a one-off issue, like exploring like different characters and their backstory or taking a break. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wanted to do something similar to that, which is have, like, a built-in mechanism for taking a break in between story arcs to just have, like, one wild adventure, like, bringing back real people. So for the first one, I knew I wanted to bring back Babe Ruth, just because, like, diehard Yankees. And also, screw it, it's my world that I'm creating, so I want to create a version of the world where the Red Sox don't win the World Series anymore. <laughs> That's horrible. I'm okay with that. That's so vindictive. Yep. <laughs> yep. One of my favorite bits of dialogue I have in this issue is when Shaman says that Babe Ruth um, is the greatest Yankee ever, which makes him the greatest person ever. And Zach just says, Yankees suck. And Shaman responds, you suck. Because that is like an honest to God, Yankees suck, you suck. That is a an actual conversation. <laughs> that is a back and forth I have had. Dozens of times in my life. I mean, I grew up in Connecticut. Um, like it was like that was constant. So the next one I wanted. So if I ever get to do more shaman, um, the next real person I'd bring back to life was uh, I would have them bring back Teddy Roosevelt to uh, help them fight magic bears. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Oh yeah, I'd be down with and, that. You know, there's him and Nikola Tesla investigating the Tagunga effect. Kind of want to have him bring John Lennon back to life. Amelia Earhart would be a really fun one to do. So, oh, so you have a long list of uh, actual people in history that you would like to bring back. Oh yeah, not, and not only like not only putting Shaman in the, like a re- not so much putting Shaman in a real world as like scenario, but just but more putting real life people in Shaman's world. Mm-hmm. So yeah, oh, you bring Babe Ruth back to life, and oh yeah, no, Babe totally can like make a magic baseball. <laughs> Babe Ruth, oh no, Babe Ruth totally knows how to curse people. He, right. he did that intentionally. Well, I love that he, he brings him back and they have to fight the green monster and Babe Ruth's like, all right, let's do this. You know, oh, yeah. this is so yeah. matter of fact. I love that part of it. But I have to ask, I love the story, but I can't help mm-hmm. but wonder when you're bringing these characters back, what the fuck is Babe Ruth going to do now that he's returned from the dead? Okay. So this was in the original version of the script, and it had to get cut for space. But uh, and what I figure is within hours, he is being given his own show by ESPN. <laughs> awesome. Like, not even days, hours, and he's on ESPN. <laughs> That's really cool. Yep. So, uh, so people accept that these characters return. Is that something in the universe they know that characters are being returned by Shaman? Does the general public know that in the book? The general public doesn't know that Shaman specifically brings dead people back to life. Um, but they do know, I mean, you know, it's a world, 
full of monsters and heroes and villains where that stuff is commonplace. Mm -hmm. And they do know that heroes die and do come back to life. So they don't necessarily know that Shaman is out there bringing them back to life. But the general populace knows that heroes die and they come back and something, somebody or something is out there doing it. Mm -hmm. um, I would say the people in his town, like the people in like his immediate vicinity, like the people he invites to barbecues, um, they know, they know what he does, or they at least have a vague idea. Um, because Shaman does not hide who he is at all. There is no taking off the glasses and going into the secret identity. He is always Shaman all the time. So his, you know, grand magical adventure persona is exactly the same as, oh shit, my daughter's sick, I need to make her some chicken noodle soup. <laughs> right. So... You know, like he has a he has a whole barbecue like issue five. I love issue five. Um, it, it was kind of inspired by like some old X Factor issues where like Peter David would just have the team just kind of chill out or go to a bar, and that would be the entire issue. So I kind of wanted to end on something like that, something not quite so action heavy, but really just focus on the characters and their dynamic and their development. I love those um, X Factor issues. I, I love when Peter David writes superhero teams. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Peter, I mean, one of the most valuable books I've ever read is um, his How to Write Comics by Peter David. Mm -hmm. Anybody who wants to be a comic book writer, I can't recommend getting that book enough. But um, so, yeah, you know, like he invites these people over and they call him Shaman. They give their coats to like a big animated golem that he brought to life with magic. And they're and they totally accept that. Yeah, that that was really cool. I, I liked I like seeing super powered characters in everyday kind of situations, you know. I love taking super people and putting them in mundane situations without trying to like hide the super. I love that. Like um so there's a new Dragon Ball anime, Dragon Ball Super. And one of my favorite things, especially in the early episodes, it would just be like Go ten and trunks try to find a wedding present and in the and they have to like fight a giant snake, but all they really want to do is like get a wedding present. Mm -hmm. Or they had an entire episode that was just Vegeta goes on a family vacation, which is twenty-two of the greatest minutes of animation I've ever seen in my entire life, because it was Vegeta on a family vacation. Mm -hmm. Well, and since we were talking about the barbecue and we've talked about a lot about humor throughout the book. Um, and there's a lot of sass, especially from LL. Um, she is the sassy one. Was the humor something that came out naturally for you, or did you really work on uh, the interactions, the banter between all the characters? Oh, no. The band, it came out completely naturally. Um, I'm telling you, I could write these three, <laughs> I could write an entire issue of these three characters waiting in line at the DMV. Like, no sweat. I could absolutely fill 22 pages of just stuck at the DMV. Um, so my background, um, I did a webcomic years ago, like when I was a teenager. That was just kind of like four panels, like joke-a-day kind of thing. So my background's in comedy. Um, worked for the Howard Stern Show years and years ago. But uh, so, no, the comedy came out very naturally. Um, if anything, I had to cut back on the number of jokes in some issues. Um, these are like, 
I can't help it. Like, I almost feel like when I'm writing, I'm half writing a comedy, a comic script and half writing a stand up comedy routine. Right. So honestly, like the jokes come first, um, more like before I have anything else, I almost, I'll, I, I almost have the jokes first. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever get concerned that, um, because there's a lot of jokes in it, that the characters are sounding similar. Is that something that you have to think about when you're, uh, writing that comedy? Yeah, that's definitely a risk. Um, it's a little mitigated in this just because you have just only three main characters. Um, and Zach is so effective as a straight man that you only really have to worry about LL and Shaman. And I feel like especially when they're together, they still have this, their rapport. Um, they're distinctive enough. Like Shaman is a little more cynical, um, a little more sarcastic, whereas LL is a little wilder, more energetic, a little more just will say whatever, like as soon as like a thought pops into her head, she'll say it. So LO is definitely the sassy one and the wacky one. Um, Shaman's a little more, has a little more of like a bitter tinge to his humor. Mm-hmm. I kind of think like LL's humor is just like her finding the joy in absolutely everything she does. And Shaman has a bit of a stronger propensity for finding humor at others' expense. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I spend a lot of times with these characters and their voices are very natural to me at this point, especially Shaman and LL. But I think in a heavy comedy book, that you definitely run the risk of your characters sounding the same. And it's absolutely something you need to keep in mind and be conscious of while you're writing. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like if you have a good group of people that have been around a while, you kind of pick up the same rhythm. And that's exactly. the way it is in life. Yeah, exactly. And a big part of the comedy was just, I do not find, honestly, Grim and Gritty. I know Grim and Gritty is on, is used as shorthand for like realistic a lot of the time. I don't find Grim and Gritty realistic. I don't find being sad or angry or depressed or scowling all the time realistic. I don't know how anybody, I don't know how you can write a whole book and not have your main character just go like, the fuck was that? At least once an issue. Right. (laughs) So to me, like, no matter what you're doing, I mean, you know, and I was never in the military, but you look at like something like, uh, oh, like Generation Kill or something like that, like if we're about soldiers, especially in the off time, and they, you see them like they're just constantly joking and laughing about war, about power, about danger. And to me, that's realistic. If you do anything, if you do it long enough, you do it consistently, you do it with people you enjoy doing it with, you're just going to end up joking about it or laughing about it or making fun of each other or just... So to me, this kind of like... Yeah, it's very heavily comedic, but I find find that more realistic Mm -hmm. than being like gritty all the time. I mean, comedy, just making jokes is almost self-therapeutic for a lot of people. Absolutely. And definitely for Shaman, who kind of needs that. Um, I think for LL, um, her kind of joys is kind of like innate. Like, I like to think that, like, there's absolutely nobody who just loves life as much as LL does. Whereas Shaman almost needs to, like, consciously remind himself or needs to consciously figure out ways of just putting in 
little bits of humor and joy into his life. And that's just, and so for shaman, shaman, it absolutely is that humor is, his humor is, um, a defense mechanism, I think. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So I definitely worry about that, but I think the fact that, and it's also, I think when characters can kind of sound the same is if you will ever look at them in a vacuum so to me, it's important that each character's interactions be different. So between Shaman and Ella, you have that like father-daughter rapport where she's a little more quick to anger just because she's got like the, you know, dad looking over her shoulder where she's like, or Shaman's cool, like, my, the way I kind of imagine Shaman is he tries so hard to be cool and is only able to be so when he finally stops trying. Hmm. So, you know, you've got it them making fun of each other a little bit her him being like i think shaman kind of enjoys being an embarrassing dad a little bit <laughs> um ellen enjoys making fun of him and then when you've got ll and zach Wu, it's a little more of a supportive like or openly supportive relationship um not to say that shaman and ll aren't supportive of each other they are by far the most important people in each other's lives the both of them would do absolutely anything for each other. But with LL and Zach, it's a little nicer, especially later on when um, she tries to mess with him a lot early on, but especially after like issues three through five, it's a much more casual friendship, a little uh, more flirtatious, um, a little more like romantic in their interaction. And then to round it out, Shaman and Zach Wu, they really just, fight and argue all the time. Right. So how long have you been living with these characters, Ben? How long have you been working on the, this story? Cause obviously, you know them intimately. Oh yeah. Um, absolutely. So I started writing, I like, I sat down to like page one, panel one, issue one, um, in the summer of 2011. And the book was finally released in stores. September 2015, so a little over, so it took about three and a half years for all the writing and art to be done, and then, so about four years from start to finish, and it finish is, it's out in stores, so I've been living with these kids for, yeah, about four years, and there hasn't been a single day where I haven't thought about them constantly. I mean, when I finished writing it, it was a real struggle to kind of put them back in the toy box, so to speak, and, like, try to focus on other stories and other characters just because they're so vivid and they've just been such a huge presence in my life for so long. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned Locust Moon is your a publisher. So how did you mm -hmm. uh, begin your relationship with them? So I've actually known the Locust Moon guys since before there was a Locust Moon, um, one of the three heads of Locust Moon, Josh O'Neill, me and my sophomore year of college, um, me and him worked the Wednesday night shifts at um, a comic book store called West Philly Comics. Mm -hmm. I know, real, real imaginative name. <laughs> it's pretty bad. There was another location called South Philly Comics. <laughs> the only thing worse would just be to call it comics. I know, right? It's like it's like when you it's like when you have one like one of those video games and you drive by us and there's like an alcohol store just called beer. Beer brand beer. Yeah. Store. 
<laughs> um, so then Wednesday opened Locust Moon, um, him and Chris Stevens. Um, I got to know those guys a lot better, um, got to hang out with them as they started the publisher and started kind of their own creative legacy. And what happened, and so at the time I had a script for issue one. I was about 21 years old at the time, had a script and nothing else, but I knew whatever it took, I, I wanted to make it. I needed to make this comic. I knew this what was, I'd written like other scripts before, Mm-hmm. But I just kind of know, I'm like, okay, this script's cool, but it's a practice script. I don't really need to get it made. The moment I had that dream, that shaman first popped into my head, I knew this is what I'm going to make. This will be my first ever real comic book, no matter what. So I think when they saw that I was serious about it and willing to take whatever it took to get it done, what they first did was they helped um, connect me to an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, they had all their artists from uh, Once Upon a Time Machine. Uh, through Dark Horse, and uh, we looked what's, through the art uh, there. What's Once Upon a Time Machine? Right, so Once Upon a Time Machine uh, was is an anthology graphic novel that was published, that was um, created by them, but published through Dark Horse. And what was it? Uh, reimagined uh, fairy tales and old fables as science fiction. They're actually doing um, a sequel um, that's uh, still through Dark Horse. That's coming out in the end of uh, next year, 2016. I actually have a story, and it's going to be based on Greek mythology and turning that into science fiction. So I actually have um, a story in that, which will be where you can next see my work after Shaman. And in that story, I uh, I reimagined some of the Greek gods as video game designers in a World of Warcraft-style game. Huh, nice. My artist for that one is the, is a woman named Alexandria Huntington. Keep an eye on her because she is going to be a bona fide comic superstar. I guarantee it. All right. But yeah, so going back to uh, how kind of Shaman was created with Locust Moon. So we found Bru- so Bruno Hidalgo was one of the artists in the original Once Upon a Time Machine, and he really right away stood out as somebody who could bring a real unique style to it and really bring out the book to its best. So me and Bruno started working together, and then not long after that, um, Chris Stevens came on to the book as the editor and um, agreed to like publish it through Locust Moon. Without Locust Moon, there is no shaman. I absolutely cannot stress that enough. The entire art team was put together by Chris and Locust Moon. Um, I guess I like do a shout out. Like they found Bruno found um like the letterer jason arthur who's done a bunch of work for like marvel dc all the big ones um letters and then they also put together that the amazing lineup of cover artists we have um feral darable on the front cover and then on the interiors we have alice lee uh rob woods uh jimmy comey uh jg jones and jim rugg all contributed some amazing covers and that's all locust moon so Hmm. Like, there is not enough thanks in the world to give them for their role in bringing this book to life. Right. I absolutely could never have done this without them. Well, how involved were they in the uh, in editing the book and uh, giving you suggestions? Um, they were pretty heavily involved, um, especially the last... They were most especially involved in the last issue where I really, where I really just could not handle letting these characters go 
<laughs> and that kind of manifested by me rewriting the script over and over and over again. Like, and not just like, oh, tweaking some things. I mean, straight up rewriting it from like page one to page 25. I completely rewrote it about like, I wrote about like three different versions of wow. issue five and they were, the, and they really need to come and be like, stop, stop writing. It's good. The first one was good. Oh, so you were rewriting it on your own. They didn't ask you to rewrite it. No, I, I just couldn't deal with not writing these characters anymore. So I just kept rewriting the last issue. <laughs> so what we came up with for issue five, um, was, so the issue five that ended up making it is about like, 90% of the first version I wrote with about 10% of the second version I wrote. Um, so what came about in the second one was I decided to reintroduce uh, Zach's grandfather, Ran Wu, who came, who was the evil skeleton that was brought back to life in issue one. Mm -hmm. So he was kind of the main element that was taken from the second draft and put in that and like introduced into the first version. And I'm really happy with that because I think it was nice getting the perspective of somebody who was brought back to life by Shaman and does and maybe doesn't really appreciate it and doesn't really like being brought back to life as opposed to like. And I think that makes a nice counterpoint, especially to uh, LL, who, as we see in that issue, um, things like like her life began the day Shaman brought her back. Right. Right. So I thought it would be a nice um, point-counterpoint, those two, in that regards. So what has it been like to work with uh, Bruno Hidalgo on the book? It's been good. Um, I really love working with Bruno. Um, so there's not there's um, definitely a bit of a language barrier. English isn't his uh, first language, and he's out in Barcelona. So there's a certain sense of like I give him the script he draws it but what's so great as I learn to work with him is that the less details I give him the better because like what I learned that if I try to like bog him down and give a whole bunch of descriptions it'll be how I imagine it and mm -hmm. that's not as good as how he how he'll imagine it so by issue three I was just like writing in the script like tattoo parlor and then and just trusting that he would design something better than I could imagine. Hmm. And he absolutely did. Like, I love, like, it's full of, like, pinks and curtains and all these great ghouly skulls with, like, horns sticking out. And, like, where is it? There's, like, an adventure. He loves putting Easter eggs, too, into it. Um, so what I really learned was just the blanker the canvas I give him, the more he'll just fill it with life and character and imagination. Mm-hmm. It's great because it makes me look good, but uh, right. How many issues did it take before you you realized you had to write less? Um, I think really, um, we kind of had a good report by issue two, but I think there's certain aspects of like maybe issue one you could see us. And again, it was my first time writing a comic book that would get made. Um, he's um, I think if you look like just compare issue one to issue two, you can really tell that by issue two we've totally found our footing. Mm -hmm. Um. He is working with him has definitely made me a better writer. I'd like to think I've made him a bit of a better artist, but that may just me being uh, presumptive and smug. Um, he he'd have to tell you that um, one. But uh, I really think, especially as we are starting our next project together, Thieves of Hell, 
with Shaman, there was definitely some like growing pains in us figuring each other out. And now by Thieves of Hell, we are a finely tuned comic making machine. Well, obviously something went well if you're doing another series together. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, there's also like a layer of like, there's also trust. There's a very definite level of trust where I know that like, if I give Bruno a script, it will get done. I don't need to bug him. I don't need to like be on his tail. I just know that it'll like Bruno is guaranteed like he'll do it and he'll do it better than I can than I could even imagine. Yeah, I mean I, he's got a very distinctive style. Yeah. I mean I can't even imagine somebody else drawing Shaman because I you know I totally picture the way he draws him in my head. Oh yeah, and that was I mean that was I mean a big thing was also just from the first issue of Shaman, just because I couldn't really help it when I was imagining it in my head, it was this kind of like Ivan Race, Jim Lee, I guess like standard Marvel DC look to it. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, your basic comic book. And that was like, so when I was writing the first issue, that was like what I had in my head. But then the longer him and I worked together, the more it became impossible to see um, the world of Shaman and the stories I was writing in any art style but his. Well, it's interesting, too, because it's like your first comic book. So, of course, you're yeah. going to be ultra protective of it, of your vision. And then, you know, then you realize, you know what? It can actually be better with the right collaborator. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's something about um, me and Bruno that I think just vibes. Like, there's some, like, on some cosmic Grant Morrison-y level. Me and him are like vibing at the same wavelength. One of my like one of my favorite things, um so when we were doing like just the shaman character design, mm-hmm. when I had it um in my head when I was like thinking about shaman's like backstory backstory, like before way before he became shaman, I had in my head that he was uh he was a music writer. Like he would like, you know, write for Rolling Stone or like a Rolling Stone esque magazine. So to me, like music and kind of like rock stars and rock music, especially sort of like grunge and classic rock were big influences on me and like kind of informing his character. And then, but I didn't actually mention any of that to Bruno. I just kind of kept that all to myself. And then when Bruno sent the character design, he said he kind of based uh, Shaman off, he made him a combination of uh, Keith Richards and Iggy Pop. Hmm. I can see that. Which was so perfect. So the two of us, without even communicating about that specifically, just both conjured up like this very music influenced creation of Shaman. So once that happened, I know, okay, this is something me and him together, we can, we're going to make something special. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing, I don't know if anybody's picked it up, but in each issue of Shaman, and this is one thing that doesn't make the story better, but I just did it because it makes me happy. And in every issue of Shaman, there is one reference to a 90s uh, grunge or alt-rock song. Oh, yeah, the Bush. Was it Bush? There was Bush. That was issue four. Um, issue one uh, is an Alice in Chains reference. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Issue two, I have Shaman just straight up singing Only Happy When It Rains by Garbage. Right. Um, three is a really subtle Stone Temple Pilots uh, reference. Four is Bush. And then... Uh, Five is uh, Third Eye Blind. I mean, that's like that's a lot of what I was listening to um, when I was writing Shaman. So um, to me, like music is a huge part of my writing process. Um, 
I almost never write unless I have some song playing that like matches the scene. When I'm first coming up with a story, what I'll do is like when I'm first like coming up with a story, not even just like, oh, issue five, issue six, just like, hey, I have this idea for a necromancer. I'll figure out a song. I'll pick a song that just has the kind of tone and atmosphere and feel of what I want the story to be. And as I'm thinking about the story, I'll just play the song on loop over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So the story becomes permanently associated with the song. So it's almost like my memory palace now where I just pick where I just start playing like a story song and I'm instantly transported into that world like of the story. Ben, you should do a, a playlist for the book. Yeah, I, I you know what? Thank you for reminding me. I meant to do it and then it totally dropped off my radar. Get it up there, man. That's I do. Cool. So kind of the theme song so to speak for Shaman would be uh, This Velvet Glove by Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mhm. But there's a lot of um so with Shaman there was a lot of modern indie rock too was a lot. Especially indie rock I feel like in the few years ago or like first half of the twenty tens was really upbeat, really kind of affirming, really joyous. So that impacted Shaman a lot and that kind of the fun overall mood of it. I want this to be a book that you just have a smile on your face the whole time you're reading it. Uh, I did, definitely. Awesome. That mission accomplished then. But with the new um, book, um, the with Thieves of Hell, I'm finding like as I'm coming up with new songs that fit this new story, I'm finding my musical taste shift to kind of match whatever story is like the primary story I'm working on. Mm-hmm. So with that story, my tastes are like getting into a lot more like punk and uh, electro swing. Electro swing, huh? Electro swing. Uh, this one song in particular, <laughs> let me look it up on Spotify so I also have the artist. Um, the song is called Bad Boy, Good Man. And it's by Tape 5 is the name. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Bad boy, good man, uh, the tape five, especially just because in Thieves of Hell, um, the main character is a Great Depression era bank robber, or, you know, before he died. Mm-hmm. So, to me, like, the kind of, the swing music fits the kind of, like, 30s depression feel that his character brings. Hmm. And with that character, um, and again, you, you've got another story about kind of like liars and thieves and con artists and tricksters. None of my protagonists are ever actually good people. <laughs> Nobody's ever actually trying to make like the world a better place. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know about that. It, it seems like Wu is pretty good. Yeah, Wu, Wu's, Wu's good. Wu, Wu wants the best. The only, time Wu, the only time Wu starts to like question his morals if it means the Red Sox won't win the World Series. <laughs> and that's understandable. From his perspective. Yeah, glove and baseball. Um, but yeah, I don't know what it is about me. Maybe a psychologist or something would like look at this and tell me, oh, it's because you're a bad person. But I don't know. I just like writing characters that want, that just have something they want and just especially use their minds, but their lie, lies, tricks, schemes, and not necessarily like cruel or bad people, but are just unconcerned with morality and they're just so determined to accomplish what they set out to do. And I don't know, maybe that's a reflection of me just being absolutely obsessive and 
getting a comic book made. But <laughs> this song "Liar" from the the Rollins band just popped into my head. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, one thing I have is that the older I get, I feel the less enamored or invested I am in protagonists whose goal is to maintain the status quo. Mm-hmm. So what you have so often, especially like the superhero stuff, is that it's the villain who wants to change, some, who wants to impact change on the world, and it's the hero's job to stop that change, to keep that from happening, to like maintain the status quo. And I don't like that. I don't think the I don't think the world's so great that the status quo is a happy ending. I like heroes who either have a goal they want or want to change the world or who have something they change they want to affect. So, well, that's one of the things I like about Shaman is that the book is focused on the characters and what they do from day to day. It's not really about the villains at all. You exactly. know, or the people they resurrect. It's about how it affects them. Yeah. So, one thing I feel like this working on Shaman taught me is the difference between what a book's premise is and what the book is about. Mm-hmm. So the premise of Shaman is a necromancer brings dead superheroes back to life. What it's about is a father and a daughter going on these crazy magical adventures. Right. So I probably should have warned you that my podcasts go long. So hopefully uh, you you're kidding? okay. <laughs> you kidding? You're giving me like all the time I want to like talk about my book. I'm a vain asshole. I love this. Oh, the super ego. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Great, man. Well, I never get an opportunity to talk about this kind of thing in so much depth, and it, yet it's what I think about all the time, so I love this. This is the best. <laughs> so I guess it's just random things I guess I'm proud of in the book. Um, issue three with LL, I'm kind of proud that I did an entire scene with a teenage girl shirt off, and it's pretty much not sexual at all. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, I don't know, I was I don't know if it's weird to be like, hey, I got a naked person in the book, but it's tasteful. But I don't know. I just feel like so much of comics is like such pan-up, scan, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, scantily dressed. Mm-hmm. I was kind of proud of myself for figuring out like... A, Cheesecake, man. Yeah, like I was kind of proud of myself for like figuring out a way to like have this character's shirt up without being like remotely titillating. Like just her, her character. Though, to me, what that revealed, especially, so to me, um, what kind of inspired that scene, especially when she's yelling at Zack to get out of the tattoo booth, is that she has this scene in issue two where, like, she has kind of a spider web tattoo on her chest, and she kind of, like, playfully pulls on her shirt a little, like, not much, but just, like, enough to, like, make Zack uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And to me, that just kind of enforced, like, and I guess at face value, her being almost, like, teasing in one scene and then like almost like prude in the next is like contradictory but to me it was like a sign that like she's someone who is okay using a little bit of her sexuality if it's something totally in her control if it's something she can make other people feel uncomfortable about if it fits her needs or wants and then whereas in issue three um it wasn't a situation where she was like in control over it where she was using it to her advantage so to me, like, I don't see anything contradictory in her, like, kind of sexy teasing Zack in issue two versus her just being startled and angry when he walks in on her, like, in issue three. Right. 
Right. No, you did that uh, well, tastefully, and um, it, I yeah. like that scene, just to have that scene, like a, a random encounter that could happen. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, that scene between Zach and LL in the tattoo booth, um, that, that was one of my favorite scenes to write, because before that scene, in my head, I had like, oh, Zach and LL, that'll be like the love story, there'll be a bit of a romance. But until that scene, I didn't realize just how much these chemistry chemistry these people have, like these two characters have. Like, well, and so, it, it makes sense because, you know, they come from two different worlds, like you were mentioning before. You know, she's magic, he's superhero. And now he's working for them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you got to be kind of cautious with the coworkers. You don't know if you want to start a relationship. Exactly. You, know, you got to feel each other out. You don't know how you're even going to fit in as coworkers, let alone um, on another level. Yeah. And also, it's the boss's daughter. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and of course, he's going to be protective of her, uh, whoever she chooses to be with, because he's, the, uh, he's the father figure. Yeah. So... Zach, in my mind, you know, not a virgin or anything like that, has definitely had a role in the sheets before. But it's also someone who's probably, like, focused on, like, his superhero duties, like, extensively. Like, he says, like, this it's not something he did because he enjoyed it or felt like this great calling. He did it because he felt it was a responsibility. And he's just been so focused on that responsibility. He probably, like, isn't too natural. He's just not particularly natural in, like, a flirtatious environment. He doesn't really know how to flirt back, so to speak. Yeah. Well, he doesn't really know how to have fun. And that's what I liked about it, too. Like, there's a part in the book where she's like, LL says to him, you know, but are you having fun? And he's like, hell yeah, I am. Yeah. You know, and I I like that because he is such the straight man. He wants to do the right thing, but he he doesn't think about how it helps him as a person, helps him to enjoy life. Exactly. Until he's with them. Exactly. That's exactly it. So I feel like the ironic thing is about this first graphic novel is that even though Zach Wu is the least important of the three main characters, he's the one who goes through the most complete character arc in the five issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was – and I really like – and it was – honestly, it was me thinking, like, what draws him to – when I was thinking down, like, what draws him to these people – like, because he doesn't have, like, the friendliest interaction with either of them in issue one. So what is it that he, what did he see looking at them that he looks at and goes, I want that. Mm-hmm. And what I came out with was this sense of, like, they don't go on, like, was the fun. Like, in my head, um, they don't have missions. They have adventures. Right. That's the distinction. So. Right. And I also liked that Shaman recognized something in him because, I mean, he's not going to just offer him a job for no reason, but he must have seen something in him that maybe he would just take advantage and use him or maybe it's something more, you know? I think that as much as they fight, as him and Shaman like fight and get on each other's nerves, I think, I, A, I think Shaman kind of recognized is that this is a guy who, now that the original is back, will probably kind of lose this identity he's had for so long as Vanisher. Um, I think on from a selfish perspective, he kind of thinks, ooh, I could really use a guy who could teleport. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's just a sense of uh, professionalism 
that Shaman respects, even if he's not willing to admit it. I think he definitely kind of respect. I think he kind of, I think Shaman recognizes as much as like he outwardly kind of like bickers of him. I think he respects and sees the need for the kind of balance that Zach gives their lives. And, you know, it's another kind of step in this family. It's kind of like the story of like a father, a daughter and the daughter's maybe boyfriend. (laughs) And then there's like a family to it. Well, it's interesting, too, because you were talking about Shaman as being uh, the Jimmy Olsen character to Gigaman. And so he understands kind of what it's like to play sidekick or second fiddle. So he understands um, what LL feels like and for to a large extent um, what Wu feels like, too, because he was the second vanisher. So, um, you know, you don't know that. I know that now. <laughs> yes. yeah. But um, that's another layer <laughs> to it. I think there's also, I think what also kind of maybe drew Shaman to Wu was the sense that, yeah, Wu kind of, uh, Wu distrusts him, doesn't know what to make of him, but that's all the superheroes. But when the chips were down and it really mattered, Wu was willing to, like, get with the program, get on the team, do what it takes to uh, bring the original Vanisher back. So I think that also kind of gave Shaman a sense of, like, Okay, you know what? You're someone that like can be relied on in a pinch. Right, right. Um, and two and three, or mostly two, I really just wanted to like right out of the gate address a the morality of uh, bringing back villains, and b kind of put Wu in a situation where his loyalties would be torn between this new team he's joined and like the superhero community he was such a big part of. Um, and I just, so I just wanted to like address that right out of the gate in my issue two, just have something that firmly establishes he's made his decision. He's picked his side and he's going to stay with these people through thick and thin. Yeah, no, I really like that part of it too. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, he totally has grown the most in the five issues, you know, shaman and, and LL, they don't, change much they're still doing what they're doing but they are affected by Wu, um who is changing and, and yeah like absolutely quite a bit i think ll i think when ll came back shaman was like the perfect father for her but i think but it's also you know she's like 19 years old um and you know it can be like contentious with like a dad who may be a little overprotective, not too much. One thing I all want to get, like, one thing I never wanted to do was have the situation be where Shaman's like, LL, stay here, it's too dangerous. And then LL's like, I'm gonna sneak, I'm gonna sneak into the mission and like disrupt things. <laughs> yeah. Like, cause that drives me nuts. I hate it. It was like every single episode of Jackie Chan Adventures. Mm-hmm. Or, I'm sure, you, I mean, I'm sure you can like off the top of your head think of a whole bunch of like examples of that kind of thing where it's like, Oh, no, sidekick, don't join me. Ah, you joined me, and now you made no, things, he, things. He doesn't hold her back. He's kind of like the fun uncle, even though he's in the dad role. Yeah. So, from Shaman's perspective, like, if is going to do this, he's going to train her. And at that point, he is a resource. He is a tool, like, as much as he loves her, he is a tool in his arsenal that he mm-hmm. is absolutely willing to use at a moment's notice. Like, she is not... Like, if something actually happens to her and, like, she gets hurt, that's all he cares about. And that's, like, where his entire focus is. But he trusts her not to get hurt. He trusts her 
he knows how he trained her. He knows who she is. He trusts her to be able to like handle her end of the job. Mm-hmm. Oh. It's it's good parenting, I think, because I see, especially nowadays, a lot of parents are overprotective. They don't want their kids to go on the jungle gym. They don't want to see him get hurt at all. They don't want to see him take chances or go out. And you know, it wasn't like that for me or when I was growing up. You know, I go out into the woods all the time because I grew up in the woods. You're going to learn to be cautious for things. You have to sometimes have an incident in order to uh, figure out how to do certain things in life. I, I like yeah. that. Like, I mean, he flash says like, Hey, I'm going to go fight the main cosmic guardian and I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave you LL to deal with the last two. I don't know how you plan on doing it or what your strategy is, but I just trust you that you can handle it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and like the one time he told he tells her to stay back, her response is like, "Yeah, I'm definitely gonna do that." And even then, she ends up saving the day anyway by jumping by like getting herself eaten intentionally. Awesome. In yeah. issue four, yeah. All right, great. So let's talk about the Kickstarter. You had a very successful Kickstarter for Shaman to print uh, the collected edition of the first five issues. So what yeah. was that experience like for you? I assume it's your first Kickstarter, too. It was my first Kickstarter. Um, fortunately, I did have some help from a, a little bit of, like, kind of figuring out the reward tiers and, what, and like, the description and stuff. Um, I had a little help from Locust Moon, and they had their colossally successful Kickstarter for uh, the Little Nemo project. Mm-hmm. Um, but once it kind of became clear that um, none of the major publishers were going to pick it up... Um, I kind of knew that Kickstarter was now, like, the last and best way to get this printed. Oh, wait, so you pitched it to other publishers then? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so the idea was kind of originally, like, so if you look at, like, Once Upon a Time Machine, if you're able to track that down, it's, like, published by Dark Horse, created by Locust Moon. So we were kind of hoping maybe we would get, like, that kind of deal again, like, like created by Locust Moon, published by... X or Y or Z. Um, but, you know, I'm a no-name creator with a no- with like a first-time writer on a completely original book. I can understand publishers looking at it and going, like, I don't think we can sell this. Right. Um, which is fine. I'll get, I'll get them next time. Or I won't, and I'll just do another Kickstarter because Kickstarter proved that if, any, if everybody else says no... I'm the only one who needs to say yes to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Kickstarter was kind of the best way to get it out there once it became, once that kind of became clear. So uh, one thing that was really important to me was having a good video. So I actually hired um, a film crew to help make the video. I was actually, I have a question about that because I love the video. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. Um, one thing that was really important in the video was music. I absolutely had to have music. I can't even tell you how many Kickstarters I watch, and it's somebody talking to a camera, like, blankly, or hell, even just, like, someone reading, like, comic panels, and they're reading what's in the panel, but there's no music, so it's just as stilted and weird. So the very first step was finding the right song for the book, and that would communicate the tone. So I really want something kind of, like, a little punkish, a little like loud and fast, and like just something like kind of action oriented that would just like suck you in right away. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then, like, I went to New York for, uh, that's where the film crew was. I kind of killed two birds, one stone that was in New York. Yeah. I now live in New York. At the time of the Kickstarter, I was living in California. Oh, that's a big change. Yeah. Well, I'm from the New York area originally, so it was something of a homecoming. So am I, actually. Nice. I'm in Chicago now, but... Chicago's cold place. Um, I know Kyle Higgins writes a lot of com- good comics that are set in Chicago. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, shout out. Everybody go by Cal. Trade should be <laughs> out. You put Nightwing in there, too, didn't you? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I met up. I love the video. Um, my only regret about the video is I kind of wish I wasn't in it. <laughs> you have to be in it, man. You're the creator. I know. You did a good I'm job. Like, I know. But I'm, like, I'm like, oh, I don't like my voice. Oh, is that my face? What a stupid face. You should have just worn glasses like Shaman. That would have been a lot better. That would have been that, that would have been cool. I, I like I said, I've got the glasses. Um, I figure one day maybe I, maybe I should cosplay Shaman, cosplay my own character. Um, <laughs> that'd be something. Um, well, kind of speaking, of, so did the video. Was really proud of the video. I kind of wanted something that, with the kind of Kickstarter standard of me there talking about it, the book. I still kind of wanted it to be almost like a movie trailer, was how I approached it, was what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me tell you, doing the Kickstarter, it was a full-time job doing that. I was every, I cashed in every single chip I had. Like, I was IMing old college friends and being like, hey, remember four years ago when I bought you a sandwich for seven bucks? <laughs> Time to pay me back. Your turn to reciprocate, buddy. Yep. So no, I reached out to like every single person, like every single person on my contact list. I pretty much contacted. And I was like, "Hey, can you donate? Or if you can't donate, can you like help? Can you just post about it on Facebook or Twitter? Just spread the word." Mm-hmm. So it really was just mobilizing a lifetime's worth of social network. <laughs> um, the initial big money items. Like, we're gone by, like, day two. So Big Brother was just, like, figuring out new big money items to offer people. My uh, my partner, who she also colored uh, the cover of issue two, um, Kathleen Krowlick, who does amazing art. And you should all visit her website at KathleenKrowlick.com. She's the artist of the relationship. I can barely draw a stick figure. So she painted these original figurines of uh, Shaman and LL and the Tattoo Fairy. So those figurines were great because those were a great new big money item. And then um, after those went, after a few weeks, I needed like one more big money item like so people to like incite people to donate um, a good amount at the end. So Bruno did um, a few pieces of original artwork, um, one each, one featuring each of the three main characters. Mm-hmm. And that so that was... Good. So if I was to do it again, I would have more of those big money items um, there at the beginning would be my advice. Um, And really, the money was great. The money definitely made the printing possible. But I feel like what I got out of that almost more than like anything than the financial was the the media and the advertising opportunity. Because what Kickstarter really is. It's a 30-day advertising blitz. 
It's an advertising campaign. It is a way to put your work. It's an excuse to put your work in front of every single human being you possibly can. Right. And you can't just launch your Kickstarter and just hope people will find it. Like, no, you have to, you, you have to take that. You have, it has to be your product, your market. You have to push it out there. And I kind of felt like success is like its own advertising thing. Cause if you do a Kickstarter and it fails, like they're still up there no matter what. So if you do that and fail, it kind of, unfortunately, it kind of follows you around. If you do a Kickstarter and it's successful and it does real well, that's almost your brand right there. You can almost go around and just say, look how much money I was able to raise just on the promise of it alone. Mm-hmm. It's, I kind of feel that success breeds success, if that makes sense. I think people like the idea of being a part of a successful project. So real important. So especially I don't know, for I, an indie book like that. Yeah, no, and I'm meeting lots of people at New York Comic Con who are being like, who like I tell them, oh, I wrote a book called Sham, and they're like, I've never heard of that. What's that? Then I pull up in the book, and they're like, oh, I saw the Kickstarter for that. Mm-hmm. So again, it's like, yeah, it's a real great way to get known. Like, I did guest articles, I did interviews, I went around, like I got a couple reviews for the book. It's a huge marketing blitz and you and the marketing value is just as if not more important than the financial importance yeah, absolutely um, well i mean you already had the issues done so you already spent the money oh yeah no like i was my attitude was i am perfectly willing to spend whatever i have to spend to make the book after that let's see what we can do mm-hmm. so what I think also helped is that um, it was picked up. It was uh, picked as uh, one of Kickstarter's staff picks, right. so that helped. But here's the: if you look at like Kickstarter and you see like the campaign images, and they all have like and they have like Kickstarter staff pick, like that little green thing on it. Mm-hmm. Kickstarter doesn't add that. They don't give you that. <laughs> I had to go in and photo. I went in and I photoshopped that in oh. and re-uploaded it. So. I guess maybe, I don't know what Kickstarter's policy would be, and maybe I'll get in trouble for advocating this, but maybe you could just Photoshop that into yours. (laughs) Well, it'd be false advertising. (laughs) I don't know if that'll work, but... (laughs) You think they would just add it to the page somehow? No, so I, I mean, you get added to like a... If you search for, like, in the staff pick section, mm. that's where you can find it. But, no, they don't, like, edit your page. So I was looking around, like, after a couple of days, and I was like, these other people got this whole green staff pick thing. I want that. <laughs> and then I just realized, I'm just going to add it myself. <laughs> Boom. Done. Nice. All right, great. Well, I just have a couple more questions, Ben. So now that you have this first volume under your belt, Mm-hmm. Uh, you've established the world and the characters. You've talked about wanting to do more, almost 60 issues worth. What would be the next story for you? What would be issue six if you could do that? So issue six would be a bit of a longer storyline, maybe like three or four issues. And it would be, it would have a uh, shaman, LL and uh, Wu. It would feature them going to a kind of, a new dimension or world that's like made entirely of magic. So like very trippy, very psychedelic, almost like Salvador Dali world. 
Um, and I would like, and that arc would also introduce a prominent character, um, uh, a woman uh, from Shaman's past, who someone from. Because I, I kind of separate Shaman's life into three sections. Mm-hmm. There's like when he was just, when he was Jimmy Olsen before this great tragedy. Then be, after the tragedy, when he was just traveling the world, learning magic, obsessed with figuring out a way to bring back the dead. And then the third period would be after he became the shaman and had the power and was just doing his job. Mm-hmm. So this would be a character, um, I think I'm going to call her Angel Fang, because I saw, because I once saw, because I went to school, I didn't know the person, it was just like, somebody named Angel Fang got called up at my graduation for college, and I was like, Angel Fang? That can't be a real name. Well, whatever. It's a great name, and I'm going to steal it. Uh, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. So so I'm, I want to introduce her as a major supporting character, kind of on par with Gigaman, um, as someone who traveled with Shaman back when he was known. I almost revealed what Shaman's real name is, but I stopped myself. I, I want to keep a couple secrets. <laughs> yes, please. Um, I do know. I do know, know Shaman's real name, though. I do have that down. It's Ben Khan, isn't it? <laughs> you got me. No, no. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> it's Demon Fang. Demon Fang. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so she's somebody who traveled the world with Shaman when he was learning magic. So, um, I kind of want to introduce her and get, um, a new female character kind of in the mix. Mm-hmm. Actually pass the Bechdel test one of these days. <laughs> That's funny. I think about that with my own book, too. Yeah. It's true, though. You don't have, like, a couple female characters talking at all in the book. There's, like, there's maybe one thing in issue five which maybe counts, but not really. Pro- if you have to, if you have to question it, it doesn't count. Exactly. Um, so Shaman, okay, it doesn't pass the Bechdel test. It definitely passes the Mako Mori test. <laughs> right. Definitely has a good, strong main sub- main female character. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody would look at LL and go like, nah, she doesn't count as a good character. Right. Or if you do, you're an asshole. Screw you. I mean, I don't think everything has to pass tests. Yeah. You know. So that one... Um, so a big part, so I want to take them to that kind of, um, so this amateur magician superhero died in this Dolly verse, let's call it, um, you know, Salvador Dolly, trippy, psychedelic magic dimension. So Shaman has to go into this dimension in order to bring him back to life. And what he'll find there is that the rules ruled by an insane God, um, that he has to deal with. Um, and I want to play with time a little bit. So I want, um, so what you'll see there is Zach and LL kind of dealing with, um, being attacked by almost like their future versions of themselves. Like LL having to fight future Wu and Zach mm-hmm. having to fight future LL. And then I want to do a, I want to do almost a whole issue with Shaman and Angel. And do you remember, did you ever see the movie Annie Hall? I don't remember. Right, well, there's a scene in the movie where Annie Hall and Woody Allen, or the actress who plays Annie Hall, are physically walking through their own flashback and giving commentary on it. 
So I want to do a, I want to do my take on that. I want to do a whole issue of like, you know, a shaman flashback issue, mm-hmm. like him when he's like first learning magic, him like when he first meets this angel character. But I also want present day angel and shaman there, giving like mystery science theater three thousand commentary on their own flashback. Hmm, that sounds awesome. You've already written this, haven't you? Um, it's been not fully. It's been outlined, mm-hmm. not fully written. Depending on how you know the old career is in a few years after me and Bruno finish Thieves of Hell, I would love to go back to Shaman if I'm in a position to do a bit of a vanity project. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love that it's a Salvador Dali world because isn't Bruno from Barcelona? Exactly. <laughs> I was just there too. So nice. um, oh, yeah. I've never been. Oh, it's amazing. It's really, really cool. We did so much. There's, it's the beautiful architecture. The people are cool. Uh, we kind of yeah. want to go back already because uh, we didn't get to everything. Well, uh, me and Bruno are planning to do um, Barcelona Comic Con in April, and that'll be cool. Not just for Barcelona, but it'll be uh, first time me and Bruno get to meet face to face. Oh, that's great. Brush up on your Spanish, man. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to ask you, actually, because I saw on Facebook that you created a banner for yourself. You know, what cons are you planning to go to? Uh, obviously, you got the Barcelona, but do you plan on going to anything else? In June, I have Awesome Con in uh, D.C., and that's all I have scheduled right now, but I'm definitely hoping to add a few more to the schedule. Like, I would love to go to uh, Mocha, if that's possible. Um We'll see. I'm on a I'm on a couple wait lists for some other places for bigger conventions, but we'll see. But oh no, you should come out here to uh, C2E2 in Chicago, and we can uh, drink beers together. Absolutely. I'm just going to go on C2E2 see when that is up. If they're even offering tables for 2016 yet, they are. Oh, March 2016. I definitely have to look at that yeah. artist alley table request. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're up. They I think they just announced a table registration like last week. So, Fantastic. Um, it's, that's, that's a great con because it's focused more on comics because, you know, like a lot of cons now are moving towards like movies and oh yeah, less about comics. I think C2E2 is still more into the comics. I've heard a lot of really good things about C2E2. So as soon as we're done here, I'm going to like head over. The, I'm going to I've got the request form open now. So as soon as we're done here, I'm going to fill that out. Oh, nice. Yeah. Let me know because, uh, you know, I'll show you around. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Love that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I would, well, I, before, I've, in the past, I've gone to conventions and seen everybody play their cool banner and just gone like, one day, I'm going to be at that, t- I'm going to be behind the table and I'm going to have a cool, badass banner. <laughs> and now I got the banner and it looks awesome. It does look good. I like it. Thank you. So, just two more questions. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about with regards to Shaman that we haven't covered, which I think we've covered pretty much everything? Um, yeah, we've talked a lot about Shaman. Um, there's a few things I I had planned or I wanted to do in these first issues or kind of reveal about the world mm-hmm. that I didn't get to. Um, like, and if I do future issues, I'd love to be able to reveal this like early on and quickly. Um, Giga Man is a gay man. He's gay. Um, so I he's kind of the only gay person in the ma- in the cast. He's a major mm-hmm. supporting character. Um, would have been nice to actually been able to put that in the graphic novel and not have to, you know, Dumbledore it. Right. I um, kind of like that you didn't. 
you know, it's not significant to uh, to the story. It just could be revealed naturally. It didn't need to come up at the bottom. Oh, well, I know exactly how I would reveal it. I'd have Shaman and Gigaman fighting again. Like, and Shaman and they're like, oh, go cry to your husband. And Gigaman <laughs> just yelling, like, you leave Dave out of this. That's perfect. Yeah, like that. So that's how I would do it. Like that exact dialogue exchange. And then there was a scene. I, I actually wrote it. I had it fully scripted out um, in the beginning of issue four, but it was just too long and it had nothing to do with the rest of the book. But I wanted to reveal how Shaman actually makes money. And the way he does is that he goes to like mobsters and crime lords and he threatens to bring back their old rivals and people they killed unless they pay him to not bring them back. <laughs> That's really cool. I actually thought of that when I was reading because he's got that whole like estate. It's got a yeah. whole name and everything. So, okay. Another thing that didn't make it into the book, but um, is something that like I thought up in my head. So how he got the house I came up with is that he once brought back like a teen superhero that died and like it's one of those like, oh, I'm the kid of like a billionaire and I'm going to be a superhero. Oh. Right. So then the dad was so then like the teen superhero's father was just so grateful to have like his son or daughter <laughs> back that like he just that like Here, let me he, like, let me give you this house by the sea. Yeah, he built a house for Shaman. Um <laughs> and yeah, I love that Shaman intentionally wants to make it look to me that's such a quintessential shaman thing, is that he wants this house to look like this dedavolated, this old, this decrepit haunted manor, like straight out of the Adams family. Mm. And it was built in like two thousand in the mid two thousands, specifically to look that way. Because he wants to be cool. Exactly. it's all about the theatricality. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, so yeah, I like the idea because like Shaman like threatening to bring people back if they don't pay him. Mm. Especially because he can't actually just bring people back at will. So he can't bring those people back. So I love the idea of Shaman blackmailing people to like to pay him. Unless, like, or else he'll do a thing that he can't actually do. <laughs> well, you know what's awesome about that, too, is that somebody could call him on it in future issues. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> if I ever, so, you know, I got, out of 60 issues, eventually I'll get to do it. It's something that, it was just like a quick scene, but it's honestly something that would be worth devoting a full issue to yeah. down the road. But, you know, I got to get through, I got to have him fight Santa and bring back Teddy Roosevelt and... You know, a flashback issue to when he first does that is like, how the fuck am I going to make money? Oh, yeah, I'm going to try this. And, you know, maybe yeah. that's uh, full of pitfalls. It doesn't go as smoothly as he planned. Oh, yeah. But, oh, yeah, that's one other future story is that Shaman will fight Santa. <laughs> nice. And that is going to be me working out all my issues as a little Jewish kid on Christmas. <laughs> that, that sounds fun. Because, boy, do I have some issues to work out. Oh, boy. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, it's uh, been great talking to you, Ben. But before we go, can you just let folks know uh, who may have missed out on the Kickstarter where they can uh, pick up the trade or find out more about Shaman? Yeah. So um, you can find out about Shaman on its Facebook page, which is just uh, facebook.com slash shamancomic. Um, if you just type Shaman Kickstarter uh, in Google, you'll find that um, first thing. But if you want to actually buy the physical graphic novel, you can pre-order now on Locust Moon 
at the Locust Moon Store Envy, and I don't know. I hope I hope everybody does. It's a cool book. Uh, Bruno and I worked really hard on it, and we could not be more proud of what we created together. Yeah, I mean, I I have to say it's one of the best new books I've read in a long time, and I try a lot of books. Um, and for being this indie book that uh, you know a lot of uh, publishers didn't want to pick up, uh, I'm surprised because it's it's fantastic. I think you guys did an amazing job with it, and I definitely want to see more uh, with these characters. Thank you. Hopefully you will. But uh, let me tell you, the new thing Bruno and I are working on, it's going to be something really cool to tell. Oh, yeah. I'll definitely check that out as yeah. well. That'll, that'll be uh, for a little while down the road. But in the meantime, yeah, I'm so glad you enjoyed Shaman. Um, it, it really is every – like I had this just vision for what I wanted to create, what I thought – a superhero comic could be, and I'm just so proud that like this dream I had four years ago, and this idea of like a style and a tone, and it's real. I, I'm holding it in my hands as we speak. And yes, the copy you purchased. This part copy I purchased. Yes. <laughs> I mean, let me tell you, there's no feeling quite like walking into a comic book store and seeing your book right in between Saga and Spider Man. That's pretty sweet. I saw the picture you posted where it was uh, nested between Saga and Spider-Man. It looked pretty yeah. pretty great. I was completely and utterly just emotionally overwhelmed. I mean, this is this is my dream that I was wearing. And this is like, since I was like a freshman in college flipping through Sandman volume of like A Game of You, and I had the errant thought of like, oh, I wonder if I could like write a comic book. My utter and complete obsession has just been becoming a comic book writer. And the fact that it's here that I accomplished this, that I made this book, and that looks as good as it does, it, mm-hmm. it, it's a dream come true. It's an overwhelming feeling. I don't really have the words. It's, I mean, every step of this has just been a first, like the first review, the first interview, the first article, the first time I flip through it, the first time I like my name appears in diamonds, it's every step of it has just been what I've been dreaming of for years. Yeah. And now you can say you are a comic book writer. I am. My name is Ben Khan and I am a comic book writer. <laughs> Boy, does that feel good to say. And you know, that's the perfect way to, uh, to end the conversation. Fantastic. Two hours of shaman. Woo! Awesome. Thanks so much, Ben, for uh, talking to me this much about your book. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you for giving me the chance and wanting to chat with me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the 15th episode of Colloquium with Ben Kahn. You can find out more about his graphic novel, Shaman, on the official Facebook page, facebook.com slash shamancomic. Ben is also on Twitter, at BenTheKahn. Shaman is available to order at locustmoon.com. For more about Colloquium, visit the Sequart Research and Literacy Organization website at sequart.org. Along with the cast, you'll find reviews, documentaries, scholarly articles, and many unique books that discuss and analyze your favorite comic book series and creators. Big thank you to John Raffano, who wrote and performed the Colloquium theme song. John is the guitarist for the post-rock metal band Sonhet, which has just been named Best Metal Band in New York City by The Village Voice. You can listen to the band's music at sonhet.bandcamp.com. 
Until next time, chums. 